0: AgriTalk is brought to you by Full Scale from Helena. Grow strong returns this season with breakthrough foliar nutrition from Full Scale at Reproduction. And by propane. Propane is the energy for everyone, especially farmers. Environmentally friendly propane can fuel most anything on the farm. See how at propane.com. Merry day after Christmas. Happy Boxing Day to our friends that celebrate Boxing Day. And welcome to the final week of 2022. We have put together a really solid show for you today. Let's talk Farm Bill and get some perspective from a couple of farmers that have been into climate-smart farming for years. Live, practically, from post Tide via Farm Journal broadcast, this is Agritalk. This afternoon, we bring you coverage from FBN's Farmer to Farmer event featuring conversations with Pat Duncanson of Highland Family Farms, former USDA Undersecretary Greg Ibaugh, and Trey Hill of Harborview Farms. I'm producer Big Apple Joe Stackler, and now the host of AgriTalk, Chip Flory. All right. Thank you so much, Big Apple Joe Stackler. Joe, I hope hope Santa was good to you. Mm Mm-hmm. You think? Mm Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, good. Did he like bring you beef? Maybe a cigar? No, actually, no, I didn't get those things. I, what
1: why you mention it? No. <laughs> you
0: didn't. know, you know. Well, maybe I'll just send you a little certificate or something, you know, so that you can go out and get a cigar. I, that sounds good to me.
1: Oh yeah, that would be yeah. cool.
0: Yeah. All right. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. Um, hey, uh, we've got a great show coming to you today. um really interesting conversations that we collected earlier this month at the farmer to farmer event. Uh, FBN had it over there in Omaha. And we're going to bring you some of the highlights from, from those conversations should be it. While well, I know that it's worth listening to Greg eyeball with some of the perspective that he's got on what this farm bill negotiation is going to look like going into uh, 2023, I think is really, really important stuff. Uh, The markets are closed, but we are here. And uh, you know what? It is nice to get some relief from the frigid temps and the strong winds that most of us had to deal with over the weekend. The weather this week looks much better, downright warm, after what much of the country had to deal with last week. Now, at the end of last week on Friday, we got the quarterly hogs and pigs report. ProFarmer did its initial analysis on the report, and I want to bring you some of that analysis right now. The December 1 hog herd was down 1.8% from a year ago. The hog herd was the smallest for December 1 since 2016 and is now down 6.5% from the 2019 peak. So if you wonder why we are talking about these tightening numbers, this is a big part of it right there, down 6.5%. From the peak that we saw three years ago. This is a, a pretty remarkable drive to the downside in hog numbers. Market hog inventory declined 2% as of December 1. Breeding herd at, 600, at 6.154 million head was actually up half a percent from last year. The trade going into the report was looking for a 0.2% decline in the breeding herd, but we got a 0.5% increase. So uh, maybe a little bit of an indication that we are starting to see some expansion coming back into the market. That's what Brian Grady and the crew over at Pro Farmer said. Uh, Brian said the slightly bigger breeding herd along with winter and spring faring intentions that were 1% and 0.5% above year ago respectively suggest that hog producers may start to rebuild their herd. That is something that obviously we're going to watch very closely as we get deeper into 2023. We also had the cattle on feed report. Uh, as of December 1, total number of cattle on feed down 312,000 head from a year ago. That's a 2.6% decline. Uh, November placements down 2.1%. Uh, traders expected a 4.2% decline, so just half the drop that traders were looking for. November marketings, slightly stronger than anticipated, uh, up 1.2% from a year ago. So, yeah, we had marketings that were stronger than expected, but our placements were higher than expected and ended up getting a uh, December 1 cattle on feed inventory. That was pretty much in line with what the trade was looking for. Uh, Brian Grady, a pro farmer, says there is nothing in the data to greatly move the market next Tuesday. Uh, placements were near the top of the range of trade expectations. They still declined notably from year ago. Okay, let's take a look at how the markets wrapped up last week and uh, how they performed la- uh, through the course of the week last week. Uh, When things wrapped up on Friday, March HRW wheat futures eight and three quarter cents higher at eight seventy four and three quarters. March SRW wheat futures jumped thirteen and three quarter cents to seven seventy six. March spring wheat closed at nine thirty one and three quarters, up nine and a half cents on the week. Last week, March SRW futures up twenty two and a half cents. March HRW futures. Up thirty and three quarter cents, and March spring wheat futures up twenty two and a quarter cents. Now, obviously, the March contract led the way to the upside. It's got to have something to do with the really poor crop conditions, along with those frigid temperatures that we had across a lot of the country last week and over the weekend. Uh, but boy, when you expose a vulnerable wheat crop to those kind of temperatures. You might be better off if the seed didn't even emerge, and and is going to sit there until spring. Give it a shot of moisture and see if we can get it up at that point. But, uh, it, it, uh, it it's spelling trouble, I believe, for that H R W crop. Going over to the corn market, March corn futures five and three quarter cents higher on Friday's close at six sixty six and a quarter. May corn was up four and three quarter cents at six sixty five. And July corn futures on Friday closed at 658 up three and three quarter cents. On the week last week, March corn up 13 and a quarter cents. And July corn last week was up nine and three quarter cents. So the bull spreads. Bull spreads worked in the corn market last week. It the bull spreads worked even though demand seemed like it was fairly slow. Now on Friday, USDA did announce the sale of 150,000 metric tons of corn to Mexico for delivery in the current marketing year. So a little bit of demand coming to the market there, but not enough to make the bull spreads work all that much. Let's take a look at how the beans wrapped up last week. March beans on Friday, 12.5 cents higher, 14.84 and a half. May beans up 14 and a quarter cents to 14.90. July soybeans closed at fourteen ninety three, up fourteen and three quarter cents. This is a weather market. I don't think there's any question about it. Uh, but the weather market is strictly sideways at this point. Last week, March beans gained just three quarters of a cent. July soybeans up three and a half cents. March cotton last week ended uh, ninety one points higher at eighty five twenty one, change for the week, up three hundred and twenty nine points, and that was with a limit down. Price performance on Thursday. We've gone through the details of the cattle on feed report through the hogs and pigs report. But on Friday's close, February cattle 45 cents higher at 157.75. April cattle gained 50 cents to close at 161.82.5. January feeders from 2.5 cents to 184 even. On the week, February live cattle up 197.5. January feeders up 22.5 cents. February lean hogs posted an inside trading day on Friday. February hogs, uh, 122.5 cents lower at 87.82.5. April hogs fell 65 cents to 95.37.5. And on the week, February hogs up $2.00 and a nickel. All right, when we come back, we've got a conversation with former USDA Undersecretary Greg Eyeball right here on Agritalk.
3: What more do you need to know?
0: Welcome back to Agritalk. Thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Chip Florey. Talking now with Pat Duncanson, partner at Highland Family Farms there in southern Minnesota. How you doing, Pat? Doing great, Chip. So, tell me about your operation up there. Sure, we're a fairly traditional family operation,
4: multi-generation, um, in South Central Minnesota in Blue Earth County, primarily grow corn, soybeans. We have a little bit of cereal rye, which is a new crop for us in the last 2-3 years. We also grow a fair amount of cover crop, uh, not for seed, but for, for soil regenerative health practices. Alright, very cool. Uh, any livestock? Yeah, we have uh, a hog operation where we uh, feed pigs for others as well as have our own pigs that we feed for market. All
0: right. Yeah, tell me about the hog operation. Is is it what you would call a traditional operation? Uh, we seem to do things the hard way.
4: Um, <laughs> traditional maybe in our facilities look traditional, but we have facilities um, on our own farm where we actually feed for integrators, but then to get the flow and to work in the right size of operation and and to get the right pieces, we actually have other people do some of those pieces for the pigs that we own. So we get to see both sides of the operation. Um, We have tremendous diversity within that operation and as that we work with several different integrators on the site so we're not necessarily business-wise beholden to one integrator or to one source. We have a fantastic packer relationship on the pigs that we own uh, with JBS. They've been really good to us, they were good to us through Covid. Uh, We were fortunate that we didn't have any of the catastrophes that happened to some operations with marketing problems. Uh, We we have our share of health issues, like a lot of people in the swine business. And we're rebuilding a barn that is uh, 18 years old, and we had a fire in it last year, doing repairs, uh, fixing the gates in the barn. Uh, When the barn was empty, fortunately there were no pigs, and we are pretty much doing a total remodel inside. Yeah.
0: The regenerative practices that you've got in place on the crop ground, what was the inspiration behind that, the motivation?
4: Well, um, Chip, you've seen me at meetings throughout the country for many decades, and I would go to these meetings and people from other areas would say, you know, maybe you should try this, and my normal answer would be, it'll never work in our backyard. These ideas are for other people and they're for other areas and you know maybe they work um, you know, south of interstate 70 in the middle of Missouri or or maybe they work uh, you know in southern Iowa south of interstate 80 but they certainly won't work north of interstate 90 or god forbid north of 94. On right. the way back from one of those meetings I met a researcher from a research farm in North Dakota north of 94 and she was working with those exact practices and and conversations like that convinced me to try uh, reducing tillage, trying to do cover cropping. So we started on small scale, we didn't convert the whole farm. And in some ways we started with the mentality of we wanna prove these concepts wrong. And yet we gave them a fair shake. Well, and lo and behold, we got through that first year and it was like, gosh, we got lucky, it worked. Yeah. Uh, we didn't lose a bunch of crop. And you know, I, don't, I won't necessarily say it was the most profitable thing that year, but it was a good experiment to say, well, there might be some potential here. So we kept doing it and we kept trying. We kept expanding it and we kept doing more things, trying it on more acres. Sometimes it was the lighter farms, sometimes it was the heavy farms that are wet, sticky gumbo. And we just expanded them and tried them in different spots. And we maybe have been incredibly lucky, but we've had incredible success with them in being able to implement those practices without negative consequences.
0: Okay, okay. I was going to say, what does success look like in in this whole
4: process? Well, part of it is a philosophy and a belief that that we believe in that, uh, for instance, this past year on, I think it was Memorial Day weekend, uh, lots of crop planted, the crop really hadn't emerged yet. We had a little bit of a late planting season last year, so there wasn't a lot of traditional ground cover for the folks that do spring tillage and then plant like we traditionally would do. And we had a storm front come through, and, um, and for a few hours, it was almost blackout conditions yeah. in our neighborhood. There was just soil blowing everywhere. So we went out to check out some of our cover crop stuff, and to the, to the row, it was just so drastically different. And that was one of the defining moments that it verified from a mentality standpoint, yeah. this is the right thing to do. Um, Those heavy rain events that we get once in a lifetime that seem to be happening every couple years. Yeah, yeah. um, Those are the source of events that have convinced us to say we've got to do something different. We can't let our farms erode. And some of our farms look quite flat. But when we get those big rain events, we still move a lot of soil.
0: You find the the slope. You find
4: the slope. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you you know, as a tiler, and we do our own tiling sometimes, drainage we sometimes find those slopes it's like gosh I never noticed that and you get out there with surveying equipment and you're like holy cow there's you know there's a a percent slope across this farm or something and those life experiences helped us uh, and I've had a a lot of mentors uh, a lot of activity a lot of people have convinced me and encouraged me to keep trying it and part of it is once we did those initial proof of concept experiments we changed our attitude into we're going to make this work and we kept reducing tillage kind of a field at a time and we're to the point after eight, eight, ten years of this journey where we have reduced most of the tillage. We're doing mostly very minimal uh, maybe a vertical disc in the fall on corn stalks and then planting uh, uh, no-till beans in the spring in a stale seedbed. We do a lot of stale seedbed planting. We're experimenting more with strip till for corn on corn so we're not doing uh, no-till corn on corn. But uh, the strip till seems to fit in that role. Got yeah, you. Got yeah. You.
0: Well, you've always been a willing learner, you know, Pat. There, there's no question about that. Is that what you're doing here at Farmer to Farmer?
4: Yeah, Farmer to Farmer is a great place to to do some learning. Um, several years ago, when I was at one of these events, I had a conversation at a booth that I had no interest in stopping. But, you know, they had something at the booth that caught my eye, and I stopped in, and it was a, an organic seed salesperson. Yeah. And that was the furthest concept from anything I was thinking of. But they started talking about profitability per acre. And they talked to me in business terms. That was a different approach than anybody in organic had talked to me before. And it and it got me thinking. Went home, talked to our farm business management advisor. And I said, show me the numbers. And Minnesota's got some great numbers for the uh, uh, farm business management program. And they've got organic acres broken out. And wow, they're just the, yep. You know, in, at a time when there was no profitability in farming, these organic farmers in that program really were showing a good profit. Yeah. And um, yeah, so, ideas like that. Um, so we have a proof of concept, 100 acres that we harvested our first organic certified crop this fall. And uh, so we have a, a, a some corn in the bend and nice. now we're starting to look for a buyer for it. And nice. uh, which you know, it, it detracts maybe from our core mission, yep. but our core mission is really to take care of the soil, take care of the farm. Um, we need to make money yeah. and we need to support our families yeah. and we need to take care of our communities. And we don't necessarily have to do that by doing the same thing that we've done for the last you know, couple generations. Right.
0: And I know you're always looking at ways to improve and you are on a panel here at, at F2F talking about biologicals.
4: Everybody wants to talk about
0: biologicals
4: um, as, a, as a farmer, in my career we've been looking for that product that we could put on that would somehow improve our crops uh, uh in a positive way a lot of the things that we do crop application wise other than fertilizers uh but i'm thinking pesticides yeah. and so forth they're really a negative thing they they you know they might protect the yield in the case of an insecticide the herbicides are going to kill the weeds and so they hopefully are going to protect the yield but the biologicals are really probably the hope is that they're a positive and that somehow they'll unlock some extra potential in the plant that we didn't normally have. So we want products like that to work. And we keep trying and we keep looking. And I would encourage people to do trials. And rather than bet the farm and say, I'm going to use this product because... It looks really promising, and somebody showed me some data that really, you know, was convincing. I really would encourage them to say, "Well, let's try it on our farm and and set up a decent replicated strip trial. Don't just do a side by side, or don't just do a I'll treat this this field and not treat the other field. Uh, you really need to, really need to follow some basic principles yep. of of um, do it right. Do it right. Yep. yep. Do it right and do a study and spend the effort because the amount of the amount that you're investing in that two ways. If the product really is worth a damn on your situation, um, you want to be able to find that out and you want to have confidence in it so that next year you can use it on more acres. So if you do the trial wrong and you get the wrong answer, either you find out you, you skip over a good product or you think you get a response and the product really wasn't worth anything, both of them can be really costly. Yeah. Yeah, I so, so I would encourage people to you know keep your eyes open, do your own trials, do your own looking. There, there are a lot of products that might be wonderful in certain circumstances, but on our organic matters, when we're, you know, 5%-ish average on our acres, maybe we need a different type of product and it doesn't respond to it like it does for a neighbor a few miles away when his organic matters are 3% yeah. or
1: whatever
4: the, whatever the variable might be or... We might put it on in furrow versus putting it on over the top and in furrow it might work and over the top it may not right. so we ha- we have to be very careful trusting um i'm going to call it the wild west of yeah. biologicals yeah very yeah.
0: cool very cool pat is good to talk with you again yeah thanks chip always good to see you all right pat Dunkinson, southern minnesota up next is former usda Undersecretary greg eyeball greg has some interesting perspective On the 2023 Farm Bill and the negotiations, this is stuff we all need to know with the new Congress. That's next, right here on Agritalk.
2: From powering irrigation engines to warming buildings, propane has always been a part of American farm life. Now, you can be a part of propane's future and save money at the same time.
3: From counting down the days of December with an advent calendar to decking out a tree in decorations and lights, Christmas is a holiday full of traditions. The tradition of hanging stockings on the fireplace can be traced back to a story of a widowed man who was worried he could not provide for his three daughters. According to Smithsonian Magazine, St. Nicholas heard about the family's hardships and filled the daughters' stockings, which were at the time drying by the fire, with gold coins. The popularity of the tradition, however, can be attributed to Clement Clark Moore's poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas from 1823. A line from the classic poem reads, quote, St. Nick filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk, and laying a finger aside of his nose, giving a nod up the chimney, he rose. From then on, it was common practice for children to hang their stockings by the fire on Christmas Eve in the hopes that Santa Claus would fill them with presents. Opinions expressed on AgriTalk do not necessarily reflect the views of Farm Journal Broadcasting, affiliate stations, or sponsors.
0: We're back at the Farmer to Farmer event, uh, brought to you by Farmer Business Network here in Omaha. And great pleasure talking with Greg Ibaugh. Former Undersecretary of Ag for the Marketing and uh, Regulatory Programs at USDA. Former um, Ag Secretary or Director of Ag here in the state of Nebraska. Greg, it's good to talk with you again, sir. It's great to be here and uh, great
5: to see the good crowd of people that are here to see what's new in agriculture and what Farm Business Network has to offer them.
0: Right. Speaking of what's new, what's new with you? What are you up to these days?
5: Well, I have a half-time appointment at the University of Nebraska that, and a large part of my focus there is connecting the research that they've done over the last 30, 40 years with soils reacting to crops growing there with the current discussions about carbon sequestration, greenhouse gas capture and, you know, how we might model trading programs that work for farmers and ranchers.
0: Greg, one of the interesting things about... The whole conversation that we've got to tell about sustainability and regenerative ag and, and and carbon sequestration is that farmers have been doing it for so long, it's like the story just has to be repackaged.
5: And that's correct. And the fact that most of the commercial programs that are available right now uh, require you to do something additional. Right. So if you've been a progressive farmer and already adopted no-till, no reduced till, if you're planting cover crops, uh, you're gonna, you find out that, well, I guess you don't qualify to fit into our carbon uh, program that we're offering.
0: Yeah, I've said uh, there needs to be some sort of a Pied Piper premium paid to those guys that have been doing it for 20 years, and, and if they can bring some along with them, great, let's compensate them, find a way to incentivize them that way.
5: Well and also I'm afraid that we're going to focus too heavily on some of this greenhouse gas sequestration and forget about all the good that the conservation programs have done for water quantity, water quality, erosion, species diversification, and other things that we have valued for all these years. So I think really the answer is how do we look at something holistic? that recognizes what farmers and ranchers have done, what they might be willing to do more as new innovation comes on that provides those opportunities like soil biologics. And how do we figure out how to reward farmers for the totality of what they're doing? Yeah,
0: fantastic, fantastic. Gets us into the climate smart farming programs that USDA has been initiating um, these are new programs that are funded by CCC. I think there's a lot of support for the programs. I don't know if there's a lot of support for the source of the funding for the programs. What's your thoughts there?
5: You know, uh, in the Trump administration, we use CCC funding with the support of Congress to provide trade mitigation payments and COVID mitigation payments. And there was some concerns about, you know, whether or not that was the right use, but Congress and the Trump administration decided it was. The way this administration has structured these payments, they're more again direct payments to farmers. They're using uh, some of these cooperators that they've awarded the grants to as the fun- funnel to, you know, pass that money through. On what I hope that we're gaining as part of this is not only you know having farmers participate in some activities that we think are going to lead to more sustainable agricultural practices but we're actually capturing data and ground truthing theories that are out there about how we are going to sequester carbon right. or reduce nitrogen loss and that we're actually having a way to be able to document are we are are these programs really effective
1: yes
0: and documenting accountability on $2.8 billion, $2.8 billion from the CCC for these climate smart farming programs, we've got we've to make sure that this money is being used as, it's, as it is intended.
5: That's correct. And even if you look at you know most of the uh, private programs are focused on uh, purchasing from individual farmers. One of the other things that uh, in my role at the University of Nebraska that we're looking at is can we put together models where farmers instead of going to a third party, an international or multinational company that's going to profit off of trading your carbon credits. How can I pass as a rancher myself my carbon credits that I generate on my grazing lands or in my row crop operation on with my feeder cattle to the feedlot and then maybe reduce their carbon footprint and instead of the feedlot having to purchase my carbon credits and then reduce the price they're gonna bid for my feeder cattle, let me just pass that along. Maybe the corn farmer can do the same thing. Maybe the ethanol plant can pass some credits along with uh, the, the wet distillers that they're sending to a Nebraska feedlot. Yeah,
0: yeah. you're talking like somebody that knows the the whole system from start to finish, Greg. I love this uh, and, and finding a way to account for all that is good that is being done in agriculture for carbon sequestration, I think is so important. You are at the F2F event to talk about the Farm Bill. And number one, in the in the title of your session, uh, of your panel, uh, show me the money. Uh, this is going to be a battle getting funding for everything that needs to be done in the Farm Bill. And I'm looking straight at Title One and improving that safety net
5: yeah and that's of course especially right now we're uh, you know the theme here is back in the black i think we have high commodity prices so we're not as worried as individual farmers about a safety net today but we know full well that we're really good at overproducing for the market if the market signals say produce. So we're probably gonna be at a time down the road where you know things aren't in the black necessarily. And so how we maintain the current insurance programs and enhance some products that uh, will work for us and the uh, farmers in the future, I think is very important. I also think though that the Inflation Reduction Act spent a lot of money on conservation. And so so maybe some of the push to shift money out of the farm bill into conservation programs, that may lessen that expectation in Congress since uh, USDA did it using CCC funds. But I think that's also going to be a focus that we're going to have to watch as farmers to make sure
0: that the farm bill delivers to us what, what we expect. Right. The um, commodity groups that I talk with, Their number one concern is let's do no harm to crop insurance. Is that asking enough? Should should we maybe be looking for some improvement in the prod in the program? I think
5: that uh, USDA has been fairly innovative in working with Congress in introducing new products, especially on the livestock side of things, that have been uh, very helpful. And maybe there's some ideas that we can glean from how livestock producers are starting to gravitate to those products where they hadn't before and use them on the crop side. But I also think we have a system that's, you know, tried and true and been tested in the marketplace and, you know, to do things that might throw that out of balance with, uh, you know, how... Uh, Congress accepts the investment, and producers
0: accept the opportunity might be dangerous as well. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's a good good approach. I mean, the, the margin programs that you're talking about from the livestock side of thing, with the input costs that have, have come into row crop production, some, some farmers might be interested in some sort of a margin pr- program.
5: I think the difference between the livestock industry and the, the crop uh industry the row crop industry in the livestock industry the main uh, cost is feed and feed is really dependent on world market prices and so we have a lot of factors that control what those prices are in row crop a lot of our inputs are are controlled by corporations and multinational companies and so there might be more opportunities for less market forces to be determining what those margins are and you know as well as i do that a big corporation is capable of figuring out where we price the inputs so that the farmer gets his margin payment and we make more money and that would be a danger i would be concerned about
0: absolutely if if those companies knew where the margin protection is they'll come and get their share of the margin that's been protected that's that's the bottom line um, the, your, your optimism for agriculture going forward, we've gone through a three or four really good years in here. Uh, not without challenges, not without challenges, but it feels like agriculture is, is uh, I don't want to say that we're peaking out, but boy, times are pretty good right now.
5: Well, unfortunately that's been driven a little bit by unrest in other parts of the world and war and uh, uh, input supplies, relationships with uh, countries that supply us fertilizer or a lot of our input uh, raw materials. And so, you know, I, I don't see that changing really fast, but like I said, producers Follow market signals, and the market's been telling them to produce more. And I think we will figure out how, as long as drought doesn't interfere with that. But uh, you know, I I do feel optimistic that uh, agriculture people are need food. Yep. Uh, different portions of the world, different regions of the world, are putting constraints on how farmers produce food there. We know the United States is the most efficient place to do uh, to uh, produce agricultural products. Uh, our pound of input or our dollars worth of input per bushel or pound that we get out uh, is unparalleled in the world. And so I really think that U.S. agriculture still has a great opportunity.
0: Greg Ibaugh, he is a former undersecretary there at USDA. Thank you so much, Greg.
5: Thank you. Wonderful talking to you again.
0: Yeah, it's always good to catch up with Greg. So, climate smart farming practices. How do you think consumers view the effort? Is it something that farmers do or is the effort to lock up carbon a service consumers should be willing to pay for? We'll discuss that with Maryland farmer Trey Hill next, right here on Agritalk.
3: AgriTalk
0: I'll be so blue just thinking, oh, about you Hey Merry Christmas and welcome back to AgriTalk Talking now with Trey Hill Harbor View Farms out in Rock Hall, Maryland. Trey, how are you?
6: I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good, good.
0: So I'm in Iowa, and we've been talking about water quality issues for quite some time, but not near as long as you guys have been talking about water quality issues out in Maryland, right?
6: Yeah, I mean, I, it's been my whole lifetime. So I'm uh, middle-aged, we'll say. It might be a little generous. But, uh, yeah, so uh, my whole career we've been talking about. I've been very involved in water quality and farming.
0: Yeah. Tell us some of the efforts that have taken place on-farm voluntarily in Maryland to improve the water quality out.
6: Well, we have a great cover crop program that's paid for by the state. Um, We've had it for about 25 years. It's got fully direct funding, so we know we can get it. We know it every year, and we can depend on it. And what that's allowed us to do is not only plant cover crops, but also know that as we finance equipment and gear up to do it, that that financing is guaranteed. Um, So that's allowed me to buy extra planters, hire extra people, do all these things without the the thought of, you know, hey, next year we might not have it, and then I've got to regroup. So I'd say that's probably been the biggest thing We've got mandated nutrient management plans. Um, They're mandated by the state, so we have to have a nutrient management plan every year that's phosphorus based. We have a lot of phosphorus due to high concentrations of poultry. I've been doing it 20, 23 years. Yeah, it's really not bad. I mean, we we soil test every year, which is good. We get a consultant that does it, so we get a third party, which we would be doing anyway. Um, And then we have to apply the fertilizer based on the recommendations of that of that plan so it's really not been horrible i think it probably helped me a little bit you know there were some fields where i'd probably go oh it's a lot easier to put a little more a little more manure over here even just because it's a little closer to the where we dropped it or something and um so it probably helped me correct a few problems
0: so when you look at the efforts that you put in place on your farms for a, a few years how do you know that you're making a difference with with your regenerative efforts
6: man i don't Um, It's tough. No, I do. I think, uh, one, I mean, when we get a big rainfall event, the water's more clear. Um, I'm not saying it's devoid of pesticides, I'm not saying it doesn't have nutrients in it because I'm sure there is some. So I'd say that's the biggest telltale sign, that and just digging with a shovel. I was a naysayer when we started the cover crop program. I didn't think they were worth anything, it was the environmentalists telling me what to do. But then they said, well, we'll pay you, and I was like, well, I can do that, I can get on that team, right? It's It's a good thing. Um, But over time we've seen the changes. Um, We're seeing some increases in organic matter not Not nearly to the extent that I was hoping for but if we pull a a, like a two-inch core Compared to an eight-inch core, there's definitely an increase in organic matter. So it's pretty exciting. It's happening It's happening. It's just really really but you're trying to build soil that took millennia in you know a year Right, you know I look at my phone and I should be able to do everything, you know within (laughs) a minute My my daughter can't believe the banks aren't open on Sundays, right? So it's um But we're we're getting there. Um, So this year we had a drought um, in part of our county. Um, So my beans weren't great, right? We went in there, harvested the beans, 50 bushel beans. I'm disappointed as heck. (sighs) What are we gonna do? And then, uh, you know, we talked to some of the neighbors that were doing some tillage and different things and they were getting 25, 30. Okay. Now on the corn side, some of my corn yields are probably off a little bit. You know, if we get a lot of rain and I'm planting green and you've got some, some things that don't get quite right or quite perfect, you know, we might not get quite the corn yields. But this year in the drought, of beans, 15 bushels is a. That's well, could, paying your bills and not paying your bills.
0: That's a that's a deal maker right there. Yeah, no doubt. The panel that you're on here at F2F, implementing and monetizing regenerative ag. You just mentioned it. You know, getting paid for some of these regenerative efforts. The incentive is there because you want it to be better. But like you said, if you can throw some financial incentive behind it, it makes it a little easier to make that jump.
6: Yeah, I think there's a lot of different concepts, and I've tried everything. Um, So we've sold carbon credits, um, which is a help. Um, We get paid for the cover crop. You know, I'm trying to get into some food system stuff where we have traceability and tracking through the food, which I think is probably where the profit's gonna be, but I think it's gonna have to be more of a multifaceted approach. You know, everyone wants the farmer to make one thing, right, you know, if if you get this, you're not getting this. And I'm going, no, it's gotta be stacked, right? If we're spending $1,000 an acre to grow acre of corn, a $15 carbon credit is a tenth of 1% of gross. Right. So let's think about this logically. Am I going to change everything I'm doing for one tenth of 1%? Right. But but if we could get the $15 there, you get some cover crop money. Maybe we could get into some ecological benefits. I've got more song more songbirds, more bees around the fields. I mean, you can see it. Yeah. I can't measure it. Um, so I think that, and then I think as we get into the food system, with some traceability things, uh, maybe some some increased density and in nutrition things like that then all of a sudden the farmers can start to get paid and it doesn't become a subsidy as much as it's a payment for service. And I think getting out of that subsidy dynamic is what kills the farmer, right? Everyone talks about farm subsidies. Well, no, it's a service. You don't complain that the guy that put the blacktop on your road got paid, right? He made it so you could get to work faster, more safely with your family and put blacktop on the road. And we're all great with that. Well, if the farmer is helping fix climate change, sequestering carbon into the soil, increasing the diversity of the ecological environment around the fields, and making the water quality better than it was before, let's call it a service payment, not a subsidy. So that that way we can make it comparable to what people are accustomed to hearing, and rather than looking like we're getting money for nothing, which is how it often is portrayed, which I don't agree with, but let's change the conversation a little bit so it's paid for by the consumer that eats the food, maybe, right? right, and passes back to the farmer. Maybe it's carbon credits to help a a big company that can't offset their carbon, you know. I mean, some companies can't. If you fly airplanes, you're not. You're going to burn. You're going right. to burn fuel. So, right. that's kind of the direction we've been going. I don't know that I've had a lot of things stick. I think the conversations are getting much stronger. Um, the carbon well, credits,
0: Trey. I'm I'm telling you this right now. Your whole service payment instead of a subsidy just gave a lot of farmers a basis for the conversation that they can have with their, with their non-farming friends to help them understand what's going on. That's a very insightful way of doing it.
6: Yeah, it's, it's taking it, it's, it's rather than than getting defensive and pushing yeah. back, it's hey, let's figure this out, okay? Climate change is something, we're part of the solution. How are we gonna do it? We can't afford to do it on our own, right? Farming's tight, it's risky, it's all the things that we all know it is, right? In the farm community. Yeah. Let's help offset it rather than just telling the farmer, okay, we're gonna make you do cover crops, plant green and all this stuff that's gonna make your life more complicated and riskier. What's insurance? It's mitigating complexity and risk. There's industries, global industries built around complexity and risk and now we're asking the farmer, increase complexity and risk. You're gonna get the same amount of money. You might feel
0: good about yourself. Right, that's excellent. Dre, keep telling the story, all right? Great, thank you. All right, that's Dre Hill, Rock Hall, Maryland. Thanks for making AgriTalk part of your day. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. We will be back with live shows tomorrow morning. Jim Wiesmeyer will get us cut off on the DC happenings. And we will talk with Jim Mintert from Purdue University. That's tomorrow morning right here on AgriTalk.